0: Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantal. I'm Tiso. And each week we talk about things that have annoyed us in the news and in our daily lives and look at them from a sociological perspective. Uh, so this week I am talking about free speech on campus so this has been like a big thing in the news for the past couple of years and um, there was like just before christmas joe johnson who was universities minister until quite recently um, said that universities were going to get fined if they didn't allow free speech on campus like for me, this is such a red rag to a bull because it's just based on absolute bullshit. And I have to say, if there's one thing that Donald Trump has done for all of us, he has raised awareness of the concept of fake news. It, like it's always been a thing. Newspapers just they latch on to stuff like this, and it is just bullshit. So, where this information comes from? There's an online magazine called Spiked, and they run the Free Speech University Rankings, which is the UK's first university league table for campus censorship. We examine the policies and actions of universities and students' unions and rank them using our traffic light system. So, this is a very finely tuned system based on three categories. (laughs) Um, So, I was interested in the kinds of things that they censor, lol, universities for uh, and looking at institutions that I've been at. So, the University of York gets an amber racing for 2018. It says... The University of York and the University of York Students' Union collectively create an environment that chills free speech. The university, which has maintained its amber ranking, restricts offensive in quotation marks jokes. It also cancelled an International Men's Day event in 2015 after protests and reported a hockey team to the police over offensive t-shirts. The Students' Union, which has maintained its amber ranking, restricts offensive sexual gestures and innuendos. like. What the fuck? So firstly, okay, let's look at International Men's Day. That is deeply offensive. I'm sorry. Like, the reason there's an International Women's Day is because there is systematic oppression and and violence against women. That is a thing. That is not, like easily disputable and not all men are top of society but men in basically all sections of society have it better than women welcome to the world so i don't i'm behind the university of york on this one uh reports a hockey team to the police over offensive t-shirts i mean that sounds like they committed a crime to me or yeah, the university suspects
1: that's what i thought so when you said that i was like why is why are offensive t-shirts in the same bracket as freedom of speech Right, I don't. This is what I mean with freedom of speech. What is it, freedom to be a dick? Or Or is it saying, like, is it inciting violence? Is it saying,
0: like, kill all Muslims because that's hate speech? Yeah.
1: Like,
2: (laughs) I I think people, I think some of this spins out of, like, universities welcoming. Controversial speakers to the campuses to speak on those yeah. issues. So
0: this is a big thing that everyone's talking about.
2: So, like, from, in obviously, in America like last year, you had the, all that stuff about alt-right going, and they're causing, basically, massive riots and fights. And then over here, like, panel's not letting people like Jermaine Greer on because they say she she's not she's uh, transphobic. Because
0: mm-hmm.
2: she said something in the past, so people say... No, she's,
0: she's said several times, I think, that, like, you know, trans women are not real women. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, like... There are, you know, I can understand why as a trans person you'd be like, just fuck off, mm-hmm. actually.
2: But I think what we've come down to, so there's an argument like, is there is there such thing as free speech, and is are we easy offended? Are we too easy offended? And I think at the moment, there's a, we're kind of walking the tightrope we're in between. My point is, at the moment, some of the things that people get upset over might be the kind of what you call like micro racisms or micro sexisms but these things, if you allow them to go on, justify the larger narratives that go on in society. So where do you draw the line?
0: I think that's totally true. I guess what I'm really interested in, and yes, I totally agree. like this is the thing, isn't it? Is that like, especially in America, there's like, I think the Guardian was reporting on it saying, you know, there should be trigger warnings before uh students have to study Ovid's metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. My little sister studying classics at uni. Yeah. It is basically a long book about people raping each other. Mm-hmm. It's horrible and actually like I can understand why, you know, if that is something that will really upset you, you might not want to go to that class. I don't know why that's such a big deal for people. Why, what was that big word you just used? Metamorphosis. Yeah, <laughs> what medieval. is that? <laughs> so it's um, a book by a Roman poet called Ovid. It's basically lots of different stories. My little sister could tell you a lot more than I, I can. I bet you know you No,
2: know I'm not like that into classics, but... Um... My little cousin, she's like, that's her thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like, you know, it's basically lots of stories in which Greek or Roman gods, but, you know, taken Mm. from Greek stories, just rape everyone. I was having this conversation with her that's a bit off topic. She was saying that she was reading a paper about how classics, but basically there doesn't seem to be in ancient Greek and in Latin a concept of consensual sex and modern translators often translate these things as seduction or things like that. And she was like, this paper was saying it's because even now, even though these men were around 2000 years ago, uh, male academics now don't like calling other men rapists. Mm Very interesting. Anyway, so yeah, there's loads of rape in these books. Like, it's not like a little thing. It's just like, it's horrible.
1: And what, so universities were putting on warnings.
0: So there's a Guardian article which talks about this, and it says that in Columbia University, the Multicultural Affairs Advisory Board complained when Ovid's metamorphosis was taught without a trigger warning. Anyway, sorry, to get back to what I was talking about, I think these rankings are really interesting because, like, from my experience of York, it was an incredibly misogynistic place it was incredibly racist and like you know all these things that happen in campus you know like those like students blacking up or um you know people like just endemic violence against women like the number of my friends who and you know myself like the level of sexual harassment in halls you know like you have to live there for a year and you're living with people who are basically allowed to be abusive because there's no system of checks Mm -hmm. or like anyone you can really talk to. These things are not jokes and I think what is interesting about this is that all these people, like people like Joe Johnson, say things like, you know, universities used to be these amazing liberal institutions where we could have free debate and talk about whatever we wanted, and you know, we didn't have all this rose must fall rubbish because you know people accepted that university was meant to be challenging. On it, whose basis On whose exactly? On whose basis. Exactly. Yeah. But it's also that you know the fact is, a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, very few people went to university, so it's all very well saying people had all these debates, blah blah blah, but like. There would have been very few people of color at university. There would have been very few working-class students. Very like, you know, some Cambridge colleges only allowed women in in 1989. Mm. Like, yeah, that I, 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 that is incredibly recently. And to say, like, basically, what I feel like they're saying is say, like, using this guise of free speech to be like, we don't like the fact that these students are challenging the status quo.
2: I was exactly say. At the moment, because we we are challenging everything and everything's been brought into a light, it makes people feel uncomfortable. Mm. And if it makes people uncomfortable, the first thing, especially if it's the state, the first thing they want to do is stop that feeling, to shut that down. And this is what you're kind of seeing and it it, it kind of multiplies across all different fields, across all different fields of identity politics because we're making people feel uncomfortable, questioning norms that they've previously either been not questioned or just... Yeah, not questioned basically. So now we're kind of questioning people, thinking, "Shit, is it alright to have statues uh, praising people who are basically slave slaveholders? Is, mm. is that okay? Is that what's is that a, is that the purpose of a statue? Getting us to question things that are even it seems so simple,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but all of a sudden become rather complex." And now people think, oh, it's political correctness gone mad. Yeah. question the statue. Why should the question statue? Well, you have to question question yeah. everything. So if we're part of the United we use I use Kant's um Kant's phrase, I want to get us a tattoo. Well, I used to want to get us a, a tattoo. Separate all, dare to know. We dare to know. And that's and that's a good that's a good thing to live by. Just
1: Kant the racist, sorry. Um no, no, I, I agree, I, I definitely agree with both of your points. The thing that stands out to me as someone pretty obsessed with politics is that notions of free speech Mm. and discourses around free speech in my opinion breed conservative ideology and ultimately voters so i think that um talking about language needing to change talk about talking about spaces needing to change to appease certain groups of people and the reaction that that might have sort of people being like oh um, why has that got to change why have we got to do this why have we got to do that that sort of sentiment is, I I believe, typical to conservat- conservatism, like keep conserving stuff, keeping things the same. And if conservative governments are seen to be taking action on PC gone mad, mm. then that is going to appease people that want things to stay the same. So... I believe that Joe Johnson, when he made these, as soon as he made these points, I was like, oh, my God, it's so party political. You are not thinking about how individuals interact on university campuses. I do not think you're thinking about that. You're thinking about how you can get the most votes. But I mean, there are people who are really passionate about this stuff.
0: And like, you know, if you're working on the Spite campaign, I mean, who knows, like people are doing a job. But um, I just, I think what really bothers me is the idea of a safe space. Why do people find that really offensive? And like, I can appreciate uh, like safe spaces are not always safe, you know? Like I spent a long time going to like women's committee and being women's officer. And there were plenty of times at university, I didn't like, it wasn't a safe space for me. I never felt like I could say what I thought. I felt like it was very easy to be attacked, but that in itself, doesn't mean that I would stop other people having those spaces. Like, I can appreciate that it's a complicated thing. The idea of being safe anywhere, for some people, that doesn't exist. But what is it? Like, so, yeah, I'll just read you the one for Goldsmiths, which I think is really extraordinary, actually. So it says, Goldsmiths got a red rating in the free speech on... It's bad. Free speech university rankings. Yeah, that's the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, free speech university rankings said... Goldsmiths University and Goldsmiths Student Union collectively create a hostile environment for free speech. The university, which has maintained its amber ranking, oh sorry, the university's amber, the student union's red, um, places restrictions on offensive and prejudiced speech. The Student Union, which has maintained its red ranking, has a no platform policy, which bans racists and fascist groups. Oh no! Like
1: what the fuck why should students have to it's listen like, to I, fascists? It's, I, I, it's like the sentence is in, it's like the sentence is incomplete it's freedom freedom of freedom to be offensive well, yeah. so it should be it's freedom to be offensive or freedom yeah. to I, say things that are going to upset people I
2: think that with freedom of speech they get people get confused because freedom is such an ambiguous term mm. right and it means different things different things to different people and this is one of the problems of the enlightenment it turns to universalize these abstract concepts, right? Now, in a public space which universities are, how does freedom of speech take take form in that space? So in from part of my PhD, people they're always writing about freedom of speech and they use this kind of defense that I can say what I want in their own safe space where they're with their fellow far right people. They, they can say what they want because it's usually a closed community mm-hmm. so whatever says never, we're not gonna they're not preaching to the choir they're not saying anything controversial no they
0: are preaching
2: to the choir, <laughs> oh, so, yeah, <laughs> the choir it's not it's not controversial what they're yeah. saying but in a public space at university freedom of speech takes on a different context mm-hmm. it's the context that's important mm-hmm. so in that environment freedom of speech has corresponding rights and obligations to everyone mm-hmm. so you can't say what you want because because that literally you're going to cause offense to someone yeah or you're going to cause harm to someone. Yeah. So it's all about context. Fre- freedom has to be contextualised. And so it, the context that it takes place in is so important.
0: Yeah. But I think also what is interesting about this is the idea that somehow students are less willing to be challenged, as though we all go through university only reading things that we agree with <laughs> and we're all, like, somehow really drippy and pathetic. When... Like, that just just is not the case. <laughs> and the idea... Like, obviously, people say things that offend people. University is a system of, like, power and hierarchy. And you don't... Like, firstly, you don't know necessarily what you, whether what you say is going to <clears> offend <throat> people. And also, as if students really can control what their lecturers are going to say.
2: What scares me <laughs> and what's coming out of this is... It's kind of this influence from the far right saying yeah. that there's a <clears throat> a liberal hegemony that exists, and it's 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 all it's, this is the new tyranny that's taking over. This is on. what
1: I mean. I don't even think it's that deep. I think it's yeah. purely about. Um, Vote impact, like getting voters. You and say I think that, it's but, about, but I mean, this is why conservative governments don't build social housing. No, This no, is no. why conservative governments don't like universities because it breeds. I totally agree with you, but left-wing ideology. But I've seen it, this
2: is a continual trend. So if you talk, if you look at on, uh, and it don't really if you look on like uh, any kind of far-right Twitter post. I'm um, on this other free far-right site called Gab, which is like a, their version of Twitter. This is the sense that the liberal media there's an agenda to push diversity on people to kind of shut that so any opposing view that doesn't fall in this liberal space of saying that uh being transgender okay being this is okay they feel like that they, they don't have that space to speak so they, they use freedom of speech to say look this is my right i can say what so if i don't think if i think all muslims are rapists that's my right to say that regardless if it's substantiated or not they feel that they, I can't. They don't have that space to say that.
1: It's just, I just think it's, so, I think it's fucking bullshit that people think that there is. There's only. A, I don't think there's a liberal media anymore. I, know, I do don't it, think there's. I think there's about two outlets that are liberal nowadays. Right, so drowned if, by if, about a thousand. But if you play by the other side from
2: their point of view, <laughs> of how they see things, so they would see, for example, gay couples kissing on TV all the time advocates that promote like I don't know Mixed race mixed families mixed race families or posters that promote that they're saying that their views are not being their voice is not being heard. From their point of view, that's how they see it. And they truly believe that. They're not being they're not making this up. They're not they truly feel this They're way. Not trying to get votes. Yeah, you can't <laughs> take that, you can't take that away from them how they feel. Whether <laughs> you agree or not is a different thing. But that's how they truly feel.
1: The imagined sense of injustice, mm. which makes people weaponize language like but then, and speech. But and this
2: is what I'm saying, so uh, what I think again, what you said is, is what you just said is important. How people use speech. You can say what you want, but don't use it as a weapon. When you use it as a weapon to hurt people, and it becomes hate speech. Words designed to hurt people, to cause offence, and yeah. this is what people do. Like there's a difference between saying what you want and having an opinion, and using that opinion to hurt people. And this is what kind of I don't know people like, um, what's his name, Tom Robertson, and these people do—they they twist words and use it in a way to hurt people, to cause offence in a way that leads to. Kind but of also,
0: harm. I think there seems to be a total disconnect in this argument between the idea that free speech is everyone's right and the consequences of like particular kinds of speech. So, mm. like the transphobia uh, thing, I think is a really important issue when trans people. What? both are murdered and commit suicide Mm -hmm. at much higher rates than cisgender people Mm -hmm. which is people who identify with the gender they were assigned at birth like that is a real world consequence of Mm -hmm. ideas that oppress people same with women same with black people so like gay people experiencing violence for being gay that is a direct consequence of ideas that are hateful
1: towards a group of people on the basis of things they can't change Mm -hmm. that's what I mean the freedom of speech discourse does not um, delve into the fact that we're not equal exactly so exactly so like obviously Joe Johnson's got a platform because he comes from one of the most privileged
0: families in the country yeah of course he can stand there in front of people and say like he gave this speech at like a a Jewish event about free speech saying how you know it's so awful that universities are oppressing free speech it's like I mean, do
1: you know what free speech did to exactly French people? Exactly.
0: Like, is that free speech then? Because Nazis, fascists, have a right to come on campus and tell everyone how much they hate them. Mm-hmm. Like, why should Goldsmiths give a platform mm-hmm. to people who, like you said once on this podcast, you know, if you say things with hate in your heart, mm-hmm. like that is not using a right to free speech. Mm-hmm.
2: This is insane. So it, mm-hmm. it comes down to be how you understand how you use words so if i'm truly expressing an opinion but am i using or i'm using my words as a weapon mm. to hurt a group of people or a person so it's about understanding that, but how do we judge that this is the thing we've got laws in place to kind of codify what is hate speech and what is not hate speech mm-hmm. But are these laws adequate how do you apply them and this is where you kind of get into this kind of sticky situation so people feel that sometimes these laws are not applied in a kind of balanced way so the best example I can give is someone like Richard Spencer of the alt right. So he's going on and he's obviously dresses, He's
0: an American. He's an
2: American, but he's going to campuses and there's been big riots because he's saying like he's going there, but they're saying we don't want you to there because essentially you're a, a Nazi.
0: Mm-hmm. And he which is, he is. Which he is. And quite proud of it. Yeah, well. and he's
2: proud of it. So he's saying, well, I have a right to f- the free speech because I'm not saying I'm going to hurt someone. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. I'm just voicing my opinion. Now. Oh, how how God, do we how so do we man. judge that? Like, because if we went there, if we went to a, for example, if, we, if all of us three went to a kind of a right wing kind of town, and we went to speak to say Afri, they would have the same kind of reaction. They were mm-hmm. like, "You guys are trying to start trouble, because we are." That we would ha- never
0: happen. Uh, like, would you never. ever go to a right wing town and be like, "We want to kill you all because of who you are"? No, because like, the power. That's like, involved, I feel like that's yeah. the difference, yeah. isn't it? It's like.
2: <laughs> I get what you say. I'm not, I'm not. I'm yeah. not touching
0: you. I'm just telling you that other mm. people should probably kill you. That's yeah. what they're doing. Mm. It's like, like you should probably be wiped from the face of the earth. I'm not telling anyone to do that. I'm
1: just saying hypothetically. When when I went to um, I was speaking at a panel at SoAS the other day, um, or the other week actually, and um, it was the panel was about are we too easily offended. It was about um the h&m advert which had the uh black boy with a jumper that said call monkey in the jungle and basically we were having a discussion really i would say pretty healthy discussion um on the meaning of the jumper and why it was problematic for some and talking about are we too easily offended etc anyway um two guys there stood up and said I just want to address the um, audience first of all and say that I'm really pleased that we can all have a healthy debate in a safe space and not be threatened with violence. But I just want to say that I think that all races should be treated um, the same and we shouldn't we shouldn't worry about jumpers like this because basically saying, like, you you bring it on yourselves this hostility, and it was... He sort of said he was a conservative. So two of them turned up and they were basically dressed... Uh,
0: like, trolls. (laughs) Like, like, there is a certain look. And they had
1: obviously come there... To cause (laughs) offence.
0: Yeah, they really... Like, the way, the whole way they... Like, their body language was... Like, they said. one of them said, can I address the room from the front?
1: Yeah, and we were like, no. And I was like,
0: absolutely not. No one else has done that. Like, stay in your seat. And then, so they stood up. Yeah. And, like, it was just...
1: Like, they were so... And they were addressing oh. certain black people within, yes. the, yeah, yeah, yeah. within the audience. And it was really uncomfortable. And I sort of made the point to him, look, you're using the word race as something which is certain and something that is biologically true, which is not fat. Like, it's a social construct. And he went, hmm... This is what I thought was really interesting. And I was like, you, yeah. like, so you're stood there going, you're, you're basically trying to say that, our oh, race doesn't matter, etc. But it is still true. Yeah. Like, black people are still inferior. And it was like, that is something that I really find problematic with this whole freedom of speech thing. Okay, freedom of speech is to give, I believe, right-wing ideology more of a platform in liberal spaces. But as Tiso said if with that comes consequences like you need to acknowledge if something isn't factually true surely I don't know
0: well no but this is the thing as well I thought what I thought was so interesting about him was he said why are we still talking about race why is this still a conversation and then said basically saying what you were saying that race is a real biological thing mm. which implies that there is a hierarchy yeah because that's where that idea comes from and that's the thing it's like you know, we want free speech and we're angry that you are trying to silence people you don't agree with uh, because we think that the status quo is basically fine. You know what I mean? Like, it's basically telling people off exactly what you're saying you're
1: encouraging it's trying to conserve yeah
0: it's trying to ideas start, you know, and one really good example of this I think is um, so yeah like everyone went crazy about Rhodes Must Fall because it attacks the establishment in like a very deep rooted way makes white people think about slavery and imply that like you know we are complicit what's Rhodes Must Fall Saskia? Um, so sorry Rhodes Must Fall is a campaign that was started in South Africa where uh, students were saying mainly people of colour but obviously South Africa is still an incredibly racially divided country like you know look up apartheid if you don't know the history look up South Africa but it stems from like British colonialism like it's something we're very much implicated in even if we try and forget that so students were saying you know we want to take down statues to rose because it's glorifying someone who created or was instrumental in creating the system whereby black people in Africa were oppressed and they were exploited for the benefit of white people and those consequences are still, you know, like there's still a huge problem in South Africa today and so students at Oxford University also started this campaign because Rhodes gave loads of money to Oxford University and like there's still a quite famous program called Rhodes Scholarships and you know people from all over the world are unable to go to Oxford University funded by these scholarships so you know that's hugely controversial because you know how dare they take down statues and you know if you're going to take down the statues of Rhodes then we should take down the statues to Winston Churchill and Oliver Cromwell it's like yeah maybe yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe that would be quite a good conversation to have yeah Um, and then uh, in December in 2017 um, (laughs) another thing that was in the news was that someone called Nigel Bigger who was an academic at Oxford said that he was going to Uh, run a project called Ethics and Empire and I gained the information for this from a website called The Conversation where other uh, academics at Oxford have said this man does not represent our views because basically Nigel Bigger's argument is that colonization wasn't that bad and why are we always going on about it like Britain should be guilty or something.
1: It is a lecture at Oxford? So
0: yeah, a history lecture. Oh my god. I know but so these are other Oxford University academics being right. like please don't think that he represents okay. us because right. you know we're horrified. These people write Professor Bigger has every right to hold and express whatever views he chooses or finds compelling and to conduct whatever research he chooses in the way he feels is appropriate. So basically they're saying you know they're not questioning his right to do this research but he says that as his views on this question have been widely publicised at the Oxford Union as well as in national newspapers, um, they risk being misconstrued as representative of Oxford scholarship. Anyway, so basically they're saying, Professor Nigel Berger is saying, we should be proud of our history as a coloniser. Um, and he says that there's this is great... Uh, paragraph where it says that his work can't pretend to offer serious history when it proposes such arguments as that the british empire's abolition of the slave trade stands simply as a positive entry in the balance book against for example the Amritsar massacre or the tasmanian genocide abolition does not somehow erase the British Empire's own practice of slavery and the benefits it continued to reap from the slave trade and arguably, I mean this is just me, still continues to reap long after it ended, such as railway investments in the UK or cotton imports from the US South. You know, and yeah. Well was done it?
1: for cleaning up the mess you started. Well yeah. exactly,
0: and also the other argument he had is that um, Nigel Bigger was arguing that actually colonialism was great because it like brought order to places and like look at Mugabe like wasn't he terrible and they would really have been better off if the British had just stayed and you're like yeah because Mugabe was a despot doesn't make the British less despotic (laughs) like that doesn't that doesn't change anything so you know these arguments about freedom of speech also I think serve to distract from the underlying things that people are trying to bring attention to. So these academics, in quite a reasonable way, are trying to say, look, we're always trying to pretend like the British Empire wasn't a thing when actually it had very real consequences and still has real consequences for millions of people around the world. And basically the establishment is putting its fingers in its ears and going, la la la,
1: freedom of speech, freedom of speech. I'm not listening because I can say whatever I want so I don't have to listen to you. freedom It's almost (laughs) like freedom of speech encourages... Us to homogenise
2: groups
1: well, of people but, uh,
2: well, I know that might sound a bit obvious but no, you know, like, it's like but said, this, this whole conversation it, it's made worse because of social media some places like Twitter where you have a cacophony of voices and everyone has the right to say what they want to say whether it's informed or not informed everyone wants the right to be heard this is, this is the nature of identity politics everyone wants a voice we need to understand like I said it all comes down to corresponding rights obligations and duties that arise from freedom you can't just say what you want because that results in the unfreedom. You click Twitter, it's a disaster. <laughs> it's chaos. Yep. Everyone's saying what they want. There's no order. To quote Kant again, rules give you freedom. And you can't get, it. There's, there's no truer thing to say that. They need some kind of order. You just can't say what you want. So in spaces like universities, in spaces at home, we, we limit what we say when we're around certain people we have to understand how people might feel what we say sometimes i'll be i can be quite confrontational and i'll go out there and say something on purpose to cause that confrontation so we have to understand that anything that we say comes with that kind of context we need we need to kind of order that
0: yeah yeah i think it's yeah like the personal example is a good example in that you don't say what you want to Mm. your boss or (laughs) to your partner or to your parents or your children. You know, like, you temper what you say because what you say has consequences for That's the people fact. you're speaking to.
2: Correct. And that is
0: the same on a societal level mm. as well as on a personal level. Mm-hmm.
2: But people, take, people have taken the concept abstractly and said f- just freedom. Yeah. And say, if you're giving that freedom, I can do what I want. No, you can't. it's it's basically (laughs) and I I sit there and speak to people all the time that say they have the freedom to do something no you don't because true freedom is unfreedom Mm -hmm. and unfreedom is a place that you don't want to be in it's chaos so yeah
0: on that note Chantal what are you talking about today?
1: Um, I'm going to talk about the daily fail aka the daily mail um, which for the past 25 years has been Edited by Paul Daker. Um, I'm going to start by reading um, some headlines that the Daily Mail has had um, over the past sort of five years and then sort of talk to you about my thoughts on these. Okay, so number one PM, UK Muslims helping jihadis. Number two, 4,000 foreign murderers and rapists we can't throw out dot 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 and yes you can blame human rights again number three fury over plot to let 1.5 million turks into britain number four millions are eating halal food without knowing it and number five Enemies of the people, fury over out-of-touch judges who defied 17 million Brexit voters and could trigger constitutional crisis. And sorry, the image that went along with that last headline was the three judges that um, uh, ruled in favour of Gina Miller's case against the UK government that they needed to vote on uh, Brexit once the deal was um, decided. After reading those sort of five headlines out, I just want to take you back to one more headline which was from January the 1st, 1973. Again, Daily Mail front page. Europe, here we come. For ten years, the Mail has campaigned for this day. We have not wavered in our conviction that Britain's best and brightest future is in Europe. Now, I think... The thing that sort of springs to mind with Daily Mail for me is that it is a source and fuel of hate speech. But I think it's much deeper than that in the sense that what I tend to do is see it as a publication. But what I need to do more of, and what I think we all need to do more of, is actually realise the human exchange behind the paper. So Paul Dacre is the person that sets the agenda. Yeah. He's the person that okays these headlines. He is the person that fuels this hate. He is the person that has his... He has the Prime Minister's ear. Yeah, And I think sometimes... What the power of the media is that it becomes the unquestionable source of knowledge. And what I think it's really important to do when we're looking at these horrible headlines is to realise that there there is a man behind this, and maybe we don't do this enough. So, what like, do, what do we know about Paul Dacre? Um, he's the highest-paid um, newspaper editor in Britain. He's been the editor of the Daily Mail for 25 years. And in my opinion, he's the most dangerous man in Britain. (laughs) More dangerous than Boris Johnson, more dangerous than Michael Gove. He... More dangerous than Nigel Farage. He sets the political agenda. He set Brexit, in my opinion. I think he is the source of power. But, and this is a big, big but, over the last 20 years readership of newspapers has been falling and at the moment it's falling a lot and that is because as we've been talking about today mass media social media different news outlets that aren't just traditional newspapers and what you sort of see happen and I can't take credit for this this analogy right now because I got this from Ed Miliband um, (laughs) is that um, basically what Ed Miliband says is that what you see with these with papers like the Daily Mail over the last few years is the more their readership has fallen, the more vicious their headlines have become.
0: Because it's like the desperate bid to try and keep people
1: interested. To keep people interested, I think it goes further than that. They're losing... They're not just losing control of their readership, they're losing control of the agenda. Yeah, OK.
2: So, so I don't think... Right, what I've been reading a lot is a lot of um, John Stuart Mill and his book on liberty, I think he has a lot to say on the kind of nature of influence that we're talking about.
0: John Stuart Mill is a British philosopher. Thank you Saskia. (laughs) (laughs) We have (laughs) spoken about him quite a
2: lot. He said like, he sees public opinion as something that was controlled by a few earlier on. So when the papers were uh, very powerful, like in the 20th century, they could exert control over public opinion. So if you go back to the 1980s and the elections, it's the Sun what won it. That was one of the yeah. headlines that they ran. They could influence public opinion. But as public opinion has become so diffuse, and so wide, these people, they, they're losing their control. How do you exert control with such a diffuse kind of population?
1: Yeah, I mean, so, sorry to interrupt you Tiso, but um, Rupert Murdoch, mm-hmm. who obviously owns the Sun, he is on record as saying, he doesn't like the European Union because they're the only people that don't listen to him. <laughs> wow. And it's, like, they're, it's the, yeah. like losing that control. Like, What do you do when you lose that control, so, Brexit? So, <laughs> so
2: what they, what, I think what, they, what they've done is realise that to influence public opinion, to, because opinion now is what matters. Public opinion has become an authority. And this is what Mill was warning against. So to do that, they've just not, not become more hateful, but just lowered their tone. They, they, they've kind of felt what the zeitgeist is, and they've tuned into that. So we need the way they language, the way they speak about immigrants is what they feel people are saying on the streets.
0: I don't think. I don't know. I don't know that you can argue that um, newspapers have become, or maybe more inflammatory. <laughs> But I'm sure if you look at a newspaper from oh, yeah. the 70s, casual racism, inciting
1: violence—you know, like all those kinds of things—surely yeah, surely no, I, they,
2: they they exist. I think they, they, they definitely existed, and like, um, like, like, like,
1: but I think I think the difference is even though you have obviously that yeah, the historical element is really important. that newspapers have traditionally been pretty sexist and racist, but what we've got now is a government that claims we legislate against sexism and racism and disc- anti-discrimination, etc. But we still have the papers that spread this stuff and say that it should be okay to be like this. So in the past, when papers were, were being like this, governments were as well. Yeah. I'm not necessarily saying gov- the government is the best with regards to equality now, but it, I mean, it, is, <laughs> it is... I think it is,
0: we're, we're it very is, clear as not. <laughs> no, but it is,
1: it, it is something that they say they are. It amazes me, it shouldn't amaze me, that Paul Dacre is like chums with Theresa May who talks to us about just about managing families and making equality part of her I mean what she wants, to be her le- to,
0: to Theresa May she hasn't been talking about that a whole lot recently no but do you <laughs> know what I
1: mean like, it's, yeah. it's, no, I,
0: I do get what you mean I think in a way it's similar to the free speech thing in that you know we have the whole idea of the freedom of the press in this country uh, which normally is a good thing because it means the government can't just use the press to dictate whatever the hell it wants but the trouble is there are still the people who run newspapers who own newspapers Mm -hmm. have incredibly vested interests in particular things so a free press does not mean it's free from influence because there's no such thing and people like Rupert Murdoch obviously is like the prime example of someone who's incredibly powerful and prime ministers parties have to basically curry favour with Rupert Murdoch or you know whoever it is now I guess like his family or the company in order to get elected, mm. you know, like he never really backed David Cameron. He he backed Tony Blair initially. He backed Theresa May. You know what I mean? Like that kind of power, like maybe it's waning, but it will just move to different people. That's why Facebook was under scrutiny and Twitter for their roles in the election because the platforms might be changing. People might not read a daily newspaper but everyone uses social media what,
2: is, okay. w- w- what scares me is that with the kind of uh, kind of moving from away from mainstream papers to online or twitter or wherever people get their news from is that you have a kind of asymmetrical power dynamic going on so you have an individual who mm-hmm. i'm not going to try to so promote them have disproportionate voices yeah so their voices carry a lot of weight and what they say influences a lot of people how influential I don't know but their voices carry a lot of weight and they don't have the kind of the checks and the scrutinies that, that are pegged to like journalism the same standards that are required even though the standard might not be high for the Daily Mail but there's still a standard whereas on Twitter there is no standard yeah but people follow that, and people create whole personas online that are not even real they're not even true but yet they still have this weight that goes by, and this kind of asymmetry that goes on, like one person affecting so many people is a danger. It is a true danger. I think
0: that this also comes back to this as well, the um, panel that Chantal was on about the coolest monkey in the jumper, in the jumper, (laughs) about the coolest monkey in the jungle jumper at Uh, H&M, what a lot of people were talking about, that maybe these companies create offensive products in order to increase their brand <laughs> oh, yeah. the
2: brand, brand, awareness, yeah. brand
0: awareness. So like Urban Outfitters were selling t-shirts that had the pink triangle on, which is what uh, gay men were forced to wear in concentration camps. Like there are, there are loads of examples of this. And um, there are people who on Twitter, I'm sure you can all think of them, who say really offensive things and everyone gets into this big like, oh, we're really offended. And then the other side goes, oh, you're too easily offended, can't you take a joke? And it gets into this like big stalemate and actually shuts down conversation. Yeah. I, and it's usually based on us to rubbish, you know, like it's never, it's never based on something. In fact, but people say these things because they know it will get a reaction.
2: But you see, I think also because they have this disproportionate voice, like when Twitter first started, these things were based on the idea of a conversation between several groups of people. But now because these people have a large following, it's impossible to have a conversation. It's impossible to have a personal comfort, to go to these things that in, the, in the deepness that you need to do. So they they say something, it's inflammatory and it becomes almost like a, a soundbite, which ripples on and ripples on and ripples on and has has no kind of grounding. Whereas at least when we had papers, people had kind of a sense where you can actually uh, debate an issue, talk about an issue.
1: Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't see that's my point here. Like I don't think that just reading those headlines to you there. I don't think the Daily Mail is a paper that promotes conversation. I think it's very fixed on- no, but Why the, did you, but sorry, read out five the five headlines and then the one about Europe? Because I wanted to show that the paper itself is not the obnoxious and highly offensive object. It's the humans behind it. But, and I think we forget that there is actually choice and there's someone that's curating this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Please. Like I feel like Paul Dacre, gets to hide behind the paper in a way. But you see, yeah. this is the
2: thing, right? people buy papers, certain papers, because they have a certain view, right? So my, my, some of my pals who have right reviews will buy The Sun, The Daily Mail, because they, they they know it panders to their point of view, Yeah. and they wouldn't buy, I don't know, The Guardian, because The Guardian doesn't reflect what they think.
0: Yeah. In the yeah. same way that yeah. you know, we, wouldn't just like, just exactly. we wouldn't buy The Daily
2: Mail, we would buy The Guardian. So <laughs> if I'm buying The Daily Mail, I know it's gonna contain that stuff. I want it to have that stuff in it. In fact, I want it to be more. So you, yeah, so, for so, research purposes. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> no but I'm just saying like if I was if I was that point of view, like you oh, wanted okay. to have that to have have those kind of views more because it reflects what you think. Yeah. So you read and you know that these people are going to go out there and investigate things that you care about. So if they're talking about EU migrants being rapists or Muslims, I know that because I that's not going to be covered in the same way as the as the Guardian. The Guardian's not going to cover it in the same way. So. This is this is actually a current issue in the far right. They're saying, like, for example, why not speaking about the rapes in Sweden?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things. I don't know. I think think one of the things that I think one of the things that um, you mentioned earlier, Tiso, and why I think that Paul Dacre is one of the most dangerous men in the country, and why I think the Daily Mail is such a problematic publication that is losing readership, is because it crosses classes. Hmm. It taps into issues of fear xenophobia racism that working class people middle class people upper class people all feel a sense of in their sort of slightly unconscious biased minds like i well, feel like it consciously and unconsciously. yeah i
0: think it's i don't know i think this is one of the interesting things about brexit and um you know the media narratives around that being you know working class people voted for brexit like i think the daily mail readership shows that it is not just working class people who hold those views, and not all working class people hold those views. Yeah, you know, like plenty of middle class people buy the Daily Mail. In fact, probably
1: more
2: middle class people.
1: Yeah.
2: So therefore, maybe the whole concept of class breaks down. Maybe it's not relevant to talk about class and these kind of things. Yeah. Because it, it's it better to talk about attitudes? Or and leave and remain? And remain and <laughs> leave. This is this is where it becomes, and this is where identity politics is a problem now, because it's 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 everything, and because it's everything, it's challenging. Our traditional views of how we see how we organize people how we as us as sociologists how we analyze society ourselves we tend to look at the society as working class middle class and upper class but maybe we don't those concepts not handy for us anymore to look at stuff like race or gender or anything because that's not what we're talking about anymore and when we're talking about issues of freedom or we're talking about issues of influence it comes down to these new ways of seeing the world in groups of I don't know what what these groups are. There's so many. It's very diffuse, and it's it's almost quite it's almost quite overwhelming for us because it makes us feel. I feel more comfortable talking about class because mm. it sets it sets the stage, and I think I know where we are. But maybe this is not relevant anymore.
0: Yeah, I had a funny moment where I was talking to um, a family friend, and I can't remember what we were talking about. And I said something like, "Oh, well, it's all down to class," and she was like, "Well, obviously, you would say that." I was like, why? She was like, because you're a sociologist. And I was like, God, I'd forgotten that most people don't (laughs) don't analyse the world in that way.
1: (laughs) Someone said to me, um, someone who (sighs) is, I won't, someone who's from France said to me, who lives in the UK, said to me, Oh, you like in Britain are obsessed with class. We don't have class in France. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, the French do think that the, the French. Lo- I can't believe really I just said that. Yeah. but I think it is a common misconception in France that they think they think the British are obsessed with class, and conversely, there is no class in France. And Which is not true. I think it's bizarre because walking around any French city, <clears throat> you can see it, but then. You know, we all tell ourselves myths to...
2: But I think, like you said, that's that's a historical thing for them. Like, they tore down their class system in 1789. Yeah, whereas we... Whereas we perpetuated ours. Yeah. So...
1: Yeah. So my question is, is the Daily Mail still a big influencer? And where will they be in the next 20 years? Well,
0: all these things are shifting constantly. And I think especially at the moment we're at a kind of... Like, juncture with where the internet's going to go. Like, I think we have no idea the influence of the internet is going yeah. to change and spread and mutate. But I think it's pretty clear that newspapers are not necessarily going to have the same kind of reach as they have traditionally had. I
2: think, in an age where people are content creators and information is generated by the user, so for example, the BBC or all papers will say to people, like they'll give them text messages saying, if, you take, if you're on the scene first, take a picture, we'll pay you for the picture. Mm-hmm. So there's a content that's generated by the user, which is completely the opposite way around it, is how it used to be. But my question is, how do you quantify influence? How influential are these things, be it the internet, be it the paper? How do you quantify how influential these people are? Because, like I said, when I used to have Instagram, I had 6,000 followers. How influential was I on these followers? Arguably, I don't think very <laughs> influential. I didn't, yeah. I didn't impact their way, life on any way, shape, or form. People, there's too many factors involved to say that that influences people to do a certain thing. So, my particular topic is radicalization. So, radicalization—they're always looking for the main influential factor that makes someone pushes them over the edge. Unfortunately, there's you can't come up with a model for that. So, for example, people will say speaking to people is the most influential part of radicalization whereas I would say being online is but it's the combination of all these factors that influence someone mm-hmm. it could be their mindset at that particular time. So how influential these things are, it's up it's up for debate because it's there's too many things to look at. One there's thing I would variables. say
0: though about the mail is that it does have a huge online readership. Yeah, I was just gonna say
1: actually <laughs> on that quite a lot of my friends you all know who you are <laughs> use the mail online probably most days and I want you to possibly rewind this podcast and listen to those five headlines that I just read out to you. That is from the same publication. I know it doesn't feel like it but you are indirectly fueling a hate machine. Don't click on the link. Don't <laughs> click on the link. Don't use Mad Online. Don't call it the sidebar of shame, like it's okay. Oh god, yeah, yeah that is what people pleasure. call it. It's like, oh it's my guilty pleasure. It's no, like- it's a racist app. <laughs> on that note. You've been listening to Surviving Society. We'll be back every other week so don't
2: forget to subscribe.